Well, good morning. Two hearty good mornings in a row. You guys are on fire today. If you will, open your Bibles uh, to John chapter 18. That's where we're going to be today. How many of you have driven to Yosemite? All right, think, think through this with me, right? You're, you're driving from here with traffic. You've been on the road for like a million hours. You're on either, I think, the 43 or the 120 takes you. You can go in through the north. Uh, you got like five, seven, maybe ten miles left, right, till you get to Yosemite. And you're driving, and, you know, you got to take the turn slowly, and, and you're just getting like, I want to be there already. Where's Half Dome? You know, you're like looking, but you're paying attention to the road because we're all safe drivers. And you're trying to get there. You're, you're looking, where's, where's, where's Half Dome? I can't see anything. Where's this supposed to be splendor and glory? Where is this? Uh, and then finally, like, you kind of just, and then you get down to the, like, the gate, and you, you come in, and you, we've made it to the most majestic place on the planet Earth, arguably within our entire galaxy, right? Yosemite. But, the, like, you don't remember, really, the last seven miles you've driven because you've been staring at the yellow and the white, you know, trying to get there safely, and you've been looking for a half dome, but there's that necessary evil you have to get through to get to Yosemite. Well, today's text is kind of like that last seven to five miles, right, where we just kind of, most people, when we're reading it, we know Yosemite is coming, like, we're getting to the crucifixion, and so we just kind of, yep, and then we get there. Today's the yep. So... We're going to try and slow it down. I'm going to be that guy who you're all honking at and tailgating, trying to get into the park. As we slow down, I go, oh, look, it's so beautiful. Look at that. <gasps> Poppies. Did you know that that's a state flower? Actually, that's pretty interesting. You can't pick them if they're on public property. It's illegal. You're right? That's me today. So thank you for being here. <clears throat> but before we go any further, just kind of bear in mind, there's a lot of splendor, beauty, and glorious things to behold in that last seven to five miles before you get to Yosemite itself. And so today, as we're coming through this text, there's a lot, a lot of really good stuff for us to just kind of sit back, examine, and be changed by. All right? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you would allow us to be here. You'd bring us here safely, um, get us a good parking spot, Lord, and that you would allow us to be in together to experience what community and belief really is. Lord, thank you for the communion for Ron and for... Um, the challenge and, and the grace of what he gives in the communion, Lord, as we, as a group of people having community, experience community with you in an intimate way. Lord, we just pray that you would guide, direct us, our thoughts, our minds. Um, Lord, that we would have open hearts and empathy as we read um, this text. It's in your name we pray. In this way, God, the creator, the sustainer, the one who holds all things together, In this way, God showed his love, so deeply loved, had a heart for, wanted a relationship with, cared about deeply the world, his creation, you, me. In this way, God so loved the world that he gave, surrendered, sacrificed, sent his only begotten one and only Son, Jesus the Christ of Nazareth, the one who set aside all of his splendor and glory and kingship, not thinking it of something to be held tightly, set it aside, came to earth, lived a perfect life, died a gruesome death on our behalf. In this way, God so loved us that he gave him 
that whoever would experience him, encounter him, see the miracles, hear the truths, be changed by him, that they would believe in him. And that when they believe in him, they wouldn't perish, they wouldn't die, they wouldn't go to an eternity separated from God's love, grace, and mercy. An eternity spent in death, punishment, torment, that they wouldn't die, but that they would have everlasting, eternal, never-ending life. An eternity spent in the presence of life himself. An eternity spent celebrating the truth of who God is and who he's made us to be. In this way, God so loved you and me and all of creation and every individual on earth that he gave his son, that if we would but believe in him, we could spend an eternity shaped by truth. It's that love that drove Jesus to do and to endure what we're going to see this morning. So as we slow down, open your mind, open your heart to what God is going to have to say to us. Don't worry about the pot roast in the oven. Don't worry about the to-do list. Those things have enough worries in themselves. But let's focus, first and foremost, on Christ and what he's doing. We're going to pick up in verse 28. Today is going to be a tale of two kingdoms. We have two kingdoms, the kingdom of God, as you'll see, and the kingdom of man colliding in this text. Last week, Justin expertly wove us through the scene at Caiaphas, the high priest's house, what goes on there. So then in verse 28, after um, the rooster crows, Peter's denied Christ three times. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves, judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. In verse 28, we see what I'm calling this tragic irony, right? Irony can be funny. Irony can be incredibly tragic. And we see this here. It says they're leading Jesus from the house of Caiaphas, governor's headquarters. It's early morning. And here it is. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. This is all kind of on the eve of the Passover. They don't want to be ritually or ceremonially unclean. They want to be able to take part in the feast and the celebration of the Passover. Do you know what the Passover is? You can find it in Exodus chapter 12. Um, Verses 12 and 14 really kind of hit this home for us here today. But the basic idea of what the Passover is, is it's when God makes a nation out of nothing. He makes a people out of slaves. He, He... We've seen nine former plagues in Egypt where Israel is slaves, and God is sending the tenth, but he's protecting Israel. He says, go, take your pure, your spotless lamb, kill it, spread its blood over your doorposts, and when the angel of death passes through tonight, he'll see that, he'll pass over you, and you'll be delivered from the judgment that's coming on the people of Egypt. It's this celebration of when they became someone. It's a celebration of when God delivered them from captivity. They are about to kill the very person the Passover is pointing to as ultimate deliverer, 
as the one whose blood will save them, not for a night, but for an eternity. It's tragically ironic that they're about to do this. They are clinging so tightly to their interpretation of laws and statutes that they themselves have even added to and and made their identity in that they're about to kill the very fulfillment of the law. It is tragically ironic that they're about to take this step. And they go on. They're talking to Pilate. Pilate goes outside to them and says, what accusation do you bring against this man? This is not necessarily Pilate saying, I have no clue why you guys are here. What are you doing here? This is actually Rome's formalized way of beginning the trial. doesn't really make sense. I mean, when the chief priests went to arrest Jesus, they took a Roman guard with them. Like, they took Roman guards with them. That's like warrants. You have to have a warrant. You don't just hire Roman guards off the street. Hey, we want to go arrest someone. Can you come with us? You have to actually go through red tape to get this done. So Pilate likely knows that this is going to happen. They come out, though, and he opens the trial. What accusation do you bring against this man? And I love how specific and to the point and concise the Jews are in response to this, right? They answered him, if this man weren't doing evil, we wouldn't have delivered him over to you. You know, evil things like raising people from the dead. Evil things like making a man capable of walking after he's been lame since birth, on the Sabbath, so it's it's, it's horrible, it's an evil thing, evil thing like turning water into wine. I get it, Southern Baptist, that one could actually pass, okay? Moving on, evil things, giving blind their sight, making the deaf to hear, you know, evil things. Luke 15, eating with sinners, oh, eating with sinners, condemns every family reunion, I can make that joke because my parents won't be here till next service. <laughs> evil things. If this man were not doing evil, we wouldn't have brought him to you. So Pilate said to them in verse 31, take him yourselves, judge him by your own law. This is Pilate trying to get rid of a situation, right? Oh, it's a moral issue. It's not a legal issue. Well, in that case, let your moral law be the thing to take care of it. Condemn him by your own law. I don't need this. It's early in the morning. I'm a government official You know how hardworking they are. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves, judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Wrong, right? Acts chapter 7, stoning, totally fine. Like you can stone someone to death. But the, the typical way that Jews would kill somebody in this day and age, they'd throw them off a cliff or they would stone them. And so... That's why we have verse 32. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. You see, when Rome would invade, they were very, they would grant autonomy. You know what? You do your own thing. You worship your God, your idols, but, you know, pay your taxes. Hail Caesar. Everything will be fine. Don't really do anything crazy that we're going to have to spend money to come in here and put down. Everything will be fine. The one thing they guarded was capital punishment. Because in Rome, capital punishment was not just a science, it was an art. And they guarded this jealously. Their former, the best way of of killing somebody was through crucifixion. So this is what Jesus has been saying all the way since even John chapter 3, again in John chapter 8, and then I think the one that hits the best is in John chapter 12. It's verses 32 and 33. Jesus is talking. He, he, in 27, says, Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. 
For this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. 29. The crowd that stood there and heard it said they had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, here we go, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. You see, Jesus walked through his entire life knowing exactly where he was headed. He knew where he was going. He knew what was going to happen. But following these four principles we've been working through as we've been engaging the scripture lately, this discovery Bible, what can we learn about God? What can we learn about mankind? What can we learn about ourselves? And then ultimately, you know, what are we going to do about it? This is the first principle we can learn from this, okay? We can be so lost in our own righteousness that we completely miss Jesus. You see here that the Jews are so tightly bound to their law, so lost within the minutia of it all, that they've completely missed the one that the law points to. They're literally not entering the governor's house so that they can remain clean, so that they can partake in the Passover, which is a signpost pointing to the very one they're putting on trial to kill. They're so lost in their own righteousness that they're completely missing Jesus. And yet we do the same thing. How many times, right, have we felt an urge to give something to a person on the side of the highway or whatever, and this is our response? No, he's likely going to use it on drugs. Statistics show, which we've never a study, which they might, but we've never read the study, but we like to say that because it backs up our Western mindset of not giving to the poor, right? Oh, no, 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 they'll likely use it on drugs. He looks like a druggie, all suntanned and skinny. And... <laughs> or, or, no, 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 I would love, to, I would love to, to engage with that person, but, you know, I have a reputation as somebody who doesn't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with those who do, so I can't hang out with them. Or, no, no, you can't go to their house because I've heard about them from your teacher. How many times do we get so wrapped up in our own righteousness, our own reputation, how we want to be perceived and or known, that we completely miss the opportunity Jesus is giving us to be Jesus to others? When you cared for the least of these, that's when you ministered to me. We can be so lost that we miss him. But the text goes on. We see this coming fulfillment of what Jesus has said about how he's going to die. And we move into verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? We see... Pilate began the questioning, are you the king of the Jews? Seems like a benign question, seems like an innocent question. Obviously, there's been some sort of charge brought against him, other than he does bad things. So he begins the questioning. And Jesus immediately, instead of saying yes or no, he says, do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? This does two things. Seems like an innocent question, But if Jesus tries to set himself up as the king of the Jews, he's saying that Rome's rule isn't real. So now he's going against Caesar 
at which point he's a traitor to Caesar and to Rome and thus must die crucifixion. Or the next thing he does, do you say this? Or has someone said it to you? He's saying, if this is a trial and this is my charge, we must have witnesses. Where are the witnesses? And we see here that Jesus' trial is going to be a trial without any real witnesses. So Pilate responds to his question with another question. Am I a Jew? What concern does this have of me? I'm a Roman. Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Are you the king of the Jews? Because if you're the king of the Jews, you're doing a pretty bad job. The Jews don't like you, and you're supposed to be their king. You've got a mutiny on your hands, buddy. Your own religious rulers and peoples have turned you over to me. And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. A truth about God that we can gain from the scripture is that his kingdom is not of or from this world. Therefore, you can't relegate his kingdom to any expression that this world does of rule or reign. God is, Jesus is not the Lord of certain demographics. Jesus is not king over certain ethnicities. Jesus is not relegated to a Republican, Democratic, Libertarian, Socialist, Fascist people. Jesus is not relegated simply to black, white, brown, yellow, purple. If they're purple, they're choking. Help them, for goodness sake. You can't reduce him to one simple expression of this world. His kingdom far supersedes and is above and is better than anything this world has to offer. And it completely inverts and upends everything about us as earthly. You've got a lot of wealth. You've got a lot of possessions. Cool. Sell them. Give the money to the poor and come follow me. Traveling in a field, find a pearl, sell everything you own, you, you buyer of fine jewels, and buy the field for the pearl. In Psalm chapter 20, the psalmist tells us, don't trust in horses, don't worry about chariots, trust in God. Zechariah, they're rebuilding the temple. They're complaining because the foundation isn't as big as it should have been or it once was. And God says, guys, it's not about your swords. It's not about your might. It's about my spirit. Later on, Matthew 20, Jesus is talking about leadership, the exact opposite of what most leadership conferences will tell you today. He says, if you want to lead, you serve. The first or last, last or first. You want to be like me? You want to lead like me? Take the lowest position. Wash people's feet. Completely upends this world. My kingdom's not of this world. It doesn't belong to the Jews. It doesn't belong to Gentiles. It's bigger than that. My kingdom is not of this world. And then we go on. He says this. Then Pilate in verse 37 said to him, So you are a king. Ah. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. 
Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Second principle we can understand about mankind and our relationship to God is that in our own right, we will never understand God's kingdom. We will try to establish our own, but we will never achieve God's kingdom on earth. And in our own right, separated from him and his grace, we will never understand his kingdom and his principles. Pilate, ruler, know by many to be an intelligent individual, capable, competent, doesn't even get what Jesus means when he says truth. Sound familiar? What is truth? What is real? What is fake? It's all subjective nowadays. And Christ still rings true, saying, I am the truth. My kingdom is founded on truth. Those who love me and follow me, they hear my voice and they know that it's truth. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing and know nothing about his kingdom. Then we have this, this text coming up right here. After he'd said this, he went back out to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a liar, a robber, an insurrectionist, an all-around good guy, right? And this is another principle for us to understand. When we're left to our own devices, we will always ultimately choose our own destruction. These people are literally and symbolically choosing their destruction over the one who can literally deliver them. Barabbas, he's a robber. He's an insurrectionist. It's because of people like Barabbas that Rome eventually is going to roll through and level the temple and all of Jerusalem. They're literally choosing their own destruction when they say, no, no, give us Barabbas. And I can only imagine some people who were robbed by Barabbas in the crowd. Like, guys, uh, I don't know... Not the best experiences with him. And some Pharisee, forgive and forget. Shut up. We want Barabbas. Barabbas. Barabbas is the one we want. <laughs> this is going to end well. Love peer pressure. It works great every time. Barabbas. Not Jesus. So these people are literally choosing their own destruction. This is an issue because, you see, we still do this. Every single one of us has done this at some point. Romans 3.23 says that every single one of us has fallen short. We've all sinned. We've all rebelled against the true king. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, even when Paul's writing, he, he says that we were all, by nature, children of wrath. By our very human nature, our DNA, we are so broken that we even broke our relationship with God when we chose ourselves when we looked to our own devices, when we looked to our own will, we stepped in, leaned in, hunkered down into God's wrath. You see the Jews here step in, lean in, hunker down into God's wrath when they say, no, give us Barabbas. 
So we move on into chapter 19. Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man! When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he's made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. We see this scene take place, and just like last week, we see the humility of God on display. And we realize that God is willing to do that which is necessary to save us. Because you see, the cross alone stands as an an emblem. But this trial is our trial. These accusations, while false for Jesus, are true for us. Every thorn on that crown piercing his skin, causing blood to fall, that fake crown, our fake kingdoms and reigns and rules that we set up, every black eye every time we've looked when we shouldn't have looked and wanted things to be seen the way we wanted them to be seen, the fat lip for every time we've gossiped, lied, told mistruths, double spoke, the bruised cheeks for every single time we tried to exalt our own beauty, our own handiwork, our own crafts to our own glory, the bone and the metal of the whip flogging Jesus back, tearing bits of skin off, causing him to bleed for every time we tried to stand and work in our own strength. This trial is our trial. Somebody had to go through this trial so that we didn't have to. God is willing to do that which is necessary to save us. Pilate hears this. He's made himself the son of God. Pilate's a superstitious guy. Intelligent, but still superstitious. Goes in to talk to Jesus. Doesn't want a curse or a hex put on him by some sorcerer or whatever. He's desperate. He's got a mad crowd outside. He's got what could be a sorcerer of some sort in his house. Do you not understand I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And Jesus, beaten, bloodied, bruised, looks him in the eyes and says, you would have no authority over me at all if it wasn't granted to you from above. Therefore, he who turned me over to you has the greater sin. God will not allow evil without his greater purpose. Jesus enduring the ultimate evil 
can look at the guy with the authority to crucify him and say, you have nothing if my God, my Father, doesn't grant it to you from above. Because Jesus was so in tandem with his Father that he knew this evil had a purpose. As Christians, we should be so in tandem with the Father that we know every trial, tribulation, pain we have to go through, we can endure and rejoice in because we know that it has a purpose. The flame no longer consumes us. The flame purifies us. Because in Christ's grace, our focus is changed from that dross, that sin, that selfishness, to the true treasure of God's kingdom and emphasis in our life. So that when the dross is burned by the fire, it's no longer our entire life being consumed. But it's everything we don't need so that we can be closer to Christ. God will not allow evil without his greater purpose. Genesis chapter 50. Brothers come up to Joseph after they've sold him into slavery. Then he got thrown in jail. All this horrible stuff. They wanted to kill him. After literally doing evil things to him, he's in a position of power. And they come and say, hey, about that. My bad. And Joseph says, hey, look, I know you meant evil for me. But am I God? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Because he was so in tune with God that he knew that his suffering and his pers- would, would produce something. Jeremiah, we all love 29.11, right? Have you read 29.10? Read 29.10 before you quote 29.11. Hey, y'all are going to have 70 years of captivity in Babylon. By property, you're going to be here a while. But I've got a plan. How many of us think 70 years of exile and slavery sounds like a fun time, right? Yeah. But God has a plan, even in the midst of evil. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7 talks about how we endure pain so that we can be comfort to others. God will not allow evil without his greater purpose. Then in verses 12 through 16. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat him down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king! They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Did you catch that? The chief priests, the ones who were responsible for the theological, religious education of the people of God the ones who were responsible for shepherding the hearts of the Jews, responded with, we have no king but Caesar. Mankind will do what we have to do to get what we want. How many times as a kid would you go to your mom, I can say this because she's not here, and you would say, hey, can I go to Taylor's house? And she'd go, 
I don't know. I don't really like Taylor that much. She's kind of a bad influence on you. Ask your dad. <laughs> hey, dad, mom told me to ask you if I could go to Taylor's house. Oh, yeah, cool. Yes, right? I just manipulated my parents. I can say that they're not... Yeah, we're good. Okay, yeah, yeah. Mankind will do and say what he wants to get what he wants. You see the Jews here utilizing the laws of Rome, people they hate to crucify Jesus. Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we've no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. God is a God who loves us so deeply that he would keep the world spinning long enough for us to encounter, engage, and believe in the son he sent so that we wouldn't die and go to an eternity separated from his grace and goodness, but that having believed in him, we could experience eternal life, truth. Jesus is willing to do that which is necessary to save us, including standing in our trial and ultimately bearing our judgment. How much more so should we be deeply changed and affected? Our love for him would spill over from our devotion or our Sunday morning into our lives, that we would start living for him. And our neighbors would no longer be somebody who is on the outside of that garage door right as we pull in. They would no longer become the necessary evil to drive past to get to our house but that we could love Christ so deeply that we would start living for him and that we would begin to see those around us, not by flesh. We recognize no one according to the flesh, but by their need for Christ. So what? He stood trial for you. He bore punishment for you. Ultimately, he rose from the dead for you to change your life. Colossians 2.15 says that he endured all this and put it to open shame, receiving glory in the act of the cross and imparting that to us so we could no longer be judged. If you love Christ, you would live for him. And if you're truly living for him, everyone around you needs to know. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you continue to work in us and move us? Would you continue to poke us and prod us and stick us that we wouldn't be able to walk away from encountering you unchanged? Lord, would we become people of truth? 
no longer putting faith in earthly things, but Lord, depending on and seeking you and and your kingdom before all things. Thank you so much for standing our trial and accepting our guilt. It's in your name we pray.